In today's episode, I spoke with Nick Sharma about modern social media, AI's impact on marketing, and MarTech tools. And if you don't know Nick, he's widely known as the DTC guy. He's a Forbes 30 under 30 member, and he's built, invested in, and grown dozens of online businesses. So check him out. He's currently the CEO of Sharma Brands and Hooks. He's a top-tier marketer as well with an eye for e-commerce. Let's dive right into the episode. I want to talk through the journey that's landed you in this area of marketing that you're most interested in. You've settled in the DDC world and you're doing specific things there, but what's been, what have been the touch points that landed you where, you've, where you are now and what you like doing? Oh man, that's actually a question I've never gotten, but I love that question because I think it's so unique. I started my career really around social media marketing and a lot of that was not necessarily content driven, it was performance driven. And so it was all about what is the content that we're putting out or how are we testing to get more likes, more followers, more engagement, more shares, more comments, right? Those were basically the KPIs. And for me, for everybody who used to post organically on Facebook, they'll remember the biggest indicator of something working was like the likes to shares ratio being as close to one as possible. And so that was always how I, that was basically how I started this world of marketing was really around how do I constantly create content that gets its own legs because of the shareability in the content? So that was one big piece, which I think helped shape a lot of how I think about content. The second one was in ad tech, specifically around performance marketing. And I worked with a lot of publishers who needed to drive high click-through rate in the ads that they were putting out and drive also high time on website. So basically their, their business model was essentially, how do we, how do we get more people on the site to see all of the ads? How do we refresh ads enough times to where we're making a good amount of money per user? And for them, that might be three or four cents per user's session with the goal of acquiring clicks or people to the site for a set, a cent or two cents. And so it was very much an arbitrage game. There's very limited room for mistakes and very limited room to, to not be performance oriented, but you have to do it in a way where you are incent getting people to click and getting people excited to click. So I think that was another big data point. So you have the social stuff, which is what type of content performs. And then you have this performance side of how do you get people to click and stay on the site? And then the third one was really like more e-commerce focused, brand building focused, and basically what I call performance branding, which is building brand equity on the back of your hardworking performance media dollars, your direct response or lower funnel ads, they don't need to be cringy or too, they don't have to feel spammy at all, but rather how do you take those ads that are going to go out anyways and just add some level of storytelling to it or some level of visual identity from the brand that sort of creates that relationship with the consumer. And so I'd say those are probably the three most interesting pieces that have shaped like my knowledge around marketing and content and basically user acquisition. Going back to your earlier days of more focus on social media, you obviously still do a ton with social media for yourself and for your brands and for companies you invest in too. Social media is still a huge part of it, I'm sure. But going back to your roots, when you think about how you would approach social media strategy for a celebrity like Pitbull versus a strategy for social for an e-commerce company today, what are maybe two or three things that are just totally different between those strategies? I think the biggest shift is like when you're doing it for a celebrity, you're focused on how you can create content that gets other people to join the conversation. 
versus when you're creating content as a brand, it's almost the opposite. You have to figure out how you join other people's conversations. A great example with Pitbull is I remember we did, we started testing something where we would quote, retweet people who would essentially talk shit about Pitbull's music and we would put something snarky and it invited everybody else to join the conversation. It also invited people to realize that just by tweeting about Pitbull at the time, there's a, there's a good chance like you're going to get some engagement out of it, a retweet, whatever it may be. Whereas today, I think, I think that still works if you're a celebrity and maybe even a brand that is seen as a celebrity in people's eyes. Like I think Mad Happy is a good example of that. Mad Happy is a brand that people see and think, I want to be in that conversation. Whereas for majority of brands and for, I think most people who are probably listening, it is the other way around. It's actually, how do you feel like customers discover you? And that's really based on flipping that conversation and saying, okay, our brand, our mission statement might be this and our tone of voice might be this, but there's no chance we find this market unless we allow ourselves to also be a little bit different or let people see us differently uh, and also let people value us for how they want to value us. Some people might just value a brand because the product works or the thing turns on and it does its job. It doesn't need to be that everybody needs to understand your brand ethos and your brand mission and what you do to give back. Most people, in fact, they don't want anything to do with that. It's a very small subset of people that I think we cater to when we talk that way. Most people want to know that like they're getting a good product. It's the best product that's on the market for what they're trying to get done and it's going to fix their problem. Yeah, I want to double click on that for the brand side. There's a lot of social advice around creators and how you can grow your account and stuff. I don't really want to touch on that right now, but more on the brand side, because I think the perception is it's harder to grow on social or through content through a brand account than it is a creator account. Totally. First off, do you think that's actually true? And then the second part would be, what are some things that you would actually do for a brand account to help it grow in this year, 2023, not Five years ago, probably different, but now. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's a statement that's true, which is like brands wish they were creators and creators wish they were brands. It's always like grass is greener on the other side. But I do think at some level, I fully agree that growing a brand account is much harder than growing a creator account or even any individual's account. But I think if you think about why it comes back to there's a single point of view to align with and to agree with or to rally around. And a lot of times creators whether it's somebody who runs for a presidential election or it's somebody who is just blowing up on the internet or it's even like a YouTuber, there's usually some sort of a point of view or something that people rally around. And that is how you build the fan base. Whereas with brands, it, it's, it can be tricky, especially with depending on what the content is. For example, there's a birth, or not birth control, Plan B company called Julie, which recently launched and they have to be very careful about how they grow their audience, what type of content they put out. I guess it just comes down to there's certain, and okay, some brands are really good at playing the content game because they're very comfortable naturing out of what their sandbox should be, which is, I think, why creators grow so quickly. They're completely okay. There's no board of directors or there's no managers that have to give approval on what goes out majority of the time. Whereas with brands, it's the opposite. It's there's almost, I know some people who might create an Instagram post or a tweet. It takes them two weeks to get approval. By the time that goes out, it's not even relevant anymore. And also it's just very vanilla. It's not risky. It's not the things that work on social today are like they're polarizing on one or one end of the spectrum. And that's just not where brands play, which is why I think brands just don't grow a lot. 
The other reason is they, they come off as brands. Who wants to talk to a corporate logo with the mask of a TikTok account on when they can just communicate with a person? And so I think the punchline to that is basically as a brand, you have to figure out how you play the role of a creator or play somewhat of that role where it feels like you're having a two-way conversation, not using social media as a broadcast channel. Last little thing I want to touch on with social that is particularly relevant right now is generative AI and how that fits in. Because to your point right now, what we're seeing is polarization works, high personalization works a lot more. And now that everybody has access to ChatGPT and things like that, I'm curious how you perceive how Twitter and LinkedIn, especially these text-based social platforms, have changed as a result of generative AI. I haven't used it a lot for the purpose of content creation. I've found that a lot of the generative text stuff does really well to a certain point. For example, if we're launching a product and it's a new, let's say we're launching a new facial cleanser with certain benefits, ChatGPT could probably give us a great outline of how to go about the strategy or even what should be included in these posts and whatnot. But I found it's not the best for actual copy or things that you would particularly copy and paste. But, and then on the visual side, I think that is actually where it becomes a really good weapon for social media managers or anybody who works in social, whether that's organic or paid. If I was told a few years ago as a social media manager that I could take a product render and put it anywhere at any point, and it takes me 30 seconds to get that asset, I would probably be pumping out like five to 10 X the volume of content. And especially combined with the way that these content platforms are working today. It's almost like the more you feed it, the better chances you have of finding something that hits. And then the smart people will create a feedback loop off of that. Okay, I see that this, this trough bottle does really well in this setting with this angle of messaging or how it looks and it works well. Now I'm gonna take this and apply this. What are the applications of this in wholesale or in B2B or in restaurants or online with paid social? So I think... The other thing is like all of this AI stuff has happened probably in the last six months, which means that if that much progress has been made in the last six months, I can only imagine what the next six months look like. I don't think it's a situation where people are going to be going out of a job as a result of this AI. I think, in fact, the be better way to look at it is how do I use this as a tool in my toolkit to do my job better or be more effective when it comes to testing, learning, optimizing, or even just like something as simple as making assets. Yeah, this kind of brings me to another point outside of social, which is not even with AI, but just now the talent pool, the roles that matter most in a marketing org, for example, how is that different now with all the tools that are available, not just AI? I think it's different in the sense that you have these tools at your disposal to see how you want to use them or how to incorporate them. I think it allows you to get faster, something even as simple as using an AI tool to read PDFs quicker all the way to taking my best version of ad copy or my best Instagram captions and throwing it into an AI tool to give me 10 other variations. Or another common one that we'll do is we'll take a version of ad copy that works well, we'll put it into ChatGPT and we'll say, okay, now here are the seven other audiences we're gonna target on paid social, write ad copy that actually speaks more to these audiences with the same sentiment of the ad copy that performed well the first time. I, again, I think of it a lot as like, it's a tool in the toolkit. I don't think, I don't think it's something that's going to replace people. 
And nor do I think it's something that can really under, you know, like AI, I don't know how well AI is able to understand culture shifts or things like that, but maybe in the future, as of now, the way I see it is like, it's a tool to, to basically learn or to get things done that would otherwise take 30, 45, 60 minutes at a time. Like writing out that ad copy is not something that's just easy to do. Now it is. Or taking a version of creative that did really well and making a clone of it, but changing something in the background it used to require a briefing process and a project manager and a designer, and then doing that same flow backwards for approval. And now it's like, you can get that done in 45 seconds. So I think the, there's a huge advantage of speed that people can basically take advantage of to like, just be faster and learn quicker. Yeah. That's probably what I would say. Awesome. I want to shift a little bit to the investing side, not actually investing, but this is part of your journey where you started investing in all these companies, you built your own things along the way, as it pertains to marketing, at least, what are the marketing activities or marketing setup strategies that you consistently come back to and say, I'm going to invest in companies that are doing this in their marketing or have this set up. Is there, are there any common points there? Yeah. It's a good question. I would say, I think it comes down to what I was saying in the beginning, companies that are not super romantic of how they believe their brand should be perceived. People who, who are constantly saying, oh, is this on brand? Oh, this needs to be on brand. This is not on brand enough, or this is too salesy. This is off brand for us. Those types of things almost turn me off because it's not really that it turns off that they want to be on brand. It's more so that they're adverse to testing things and just learning and seeing what happens. I definitely think there's a huge, there should be a huge emphasis on making sure things are on brand, but it's hard to have a brand if you don't have customers. And the only way to get customers is to really do a lot of testing and learning vigorously to understand what brings people in and gets them excited about you. And a lot of times too, I love seeing when brands are just repurposing things that their customers say, like, a lot of times the best ad copy comes from a review or comes from a statement that somebody has when they first try your product or open the box. And it's less about the fact that it's quick and efficient and free, but more so that you're leading your marketing with how the market wants you to do it versus how, you know, you want to do it based off a conference room with very specific reasons as to how you got there. And you yourself actually invested early in Marketer Hire, which is hosting this podcast yes. right now, years ago, and you refer a lot of people to the platform. When you're seeing this shift in freelance talent, I'm curious what makes, what a platform like Marketer Hire or other platforms, what makes it easy to refer freelancers or make, makes it easy to refer work to like a platform like that or to freelancers instead of trying to hire for it or whatever? I think one is, I've just always thought of marketer hire as the, like the Harvard of freelance marketing or marketing contractors. I think there's a stat somewhere that says it's harder to actually be a vetted marketer hire marketer than it is to get into Harvard. And, and I've also used marketer hire a few times in the past with portfolio companies, but also clients who just need one or two things done. They maybe don't need a full agency and they maybe don't need a full internal hire but they need somebody, one person who can help with CRO, one person who can be a data analyst, one person who can look into subscription churn and understand opportunities there. I think marketer hire is fantastic for that. 
And the way that it's set up like a PEO also makes it just very easy for companies to turn it off and then turn it off, turn it on when they need it and turn it off when they don't need it. It's very much just set up in a way that's like founder friendly, which I think is really important as a service business and is also friendly to processes at most companies. If somebody were to hire an agency or to hire a full-time hire, it's a whole different process. There's procurement or there's internal reviews, all this stuff. But with Market or Hire, it just makes it easy to say, okay, we need somebody to help us understand our subscription business. Cool, let's get somebody in. We need them for two months and then we don't need them. Or maybe we get them on a monthly basis and it's at a very specific set scope and rate. Um, it's just done in a way that's friendly to the brands that actually need the help quickly and with high quality talent. I want to I finish this off with rapid fires if you're, if you're down for that. Let's do it. Why do you think more really talented marketers are choosing freelance over in-house right now? Oh, I think one is flexibility. I think people just like flexibility to work. I think the other one is there's just a lot of cool stuff happening in this industry. And I think being able to touch different pieces of it or work on multiple projects is enticing. Me personally, we work with anywhere from seven to nine brands at any given time. I like the fact that I can learn about different industries through our clients. We can run tests one in one place and apply those learnings everywhere else. But, and I think too, the, you don't, I don't personally fight what is, what brands missions align to me personally. And do I see myself here for X number of time? It's more, I will work on the brands that I'm excited to work with and they get what they need out of me and vice versa. What are the MarTech tools that you couldn't live without right now? Oh man, there's a few. I would say Taito for custom dashboards. I would say Clavio PostScript for CRM. I would say Motion for creative analytics. Northbeam for attribution and understanding what creatives and campaigns are working. What else? Shopify. Shopify has now its own suite of MarTech that they're installing with Shop. Those are the ones that come off the top of my head. Okendo for reviews, post-purchase surveys, et cetera. Yeah, a lot, a lot of solid ones. And is there one that is new that, that you're like, you like it, but it's maybe not a staple yet, but it's new and you're really enjoying it. Could even be a plugin or extension or whatever. Yeah. One that I am enjoying a lot more from a revenue standpoint is called Vigilance, which is a coupon code. They find coupon codes that have been just mass produced all over the web or it was an influencer code, a part of a campaign that was then put on Retail Me Not or something. And it saved, it saved tons of money for brands just by, it's essentially like a bodyguard at checkout for coupon codes. Last one, what's been your overall experience with working with offshore talent? What kind of impact have you seen there? Oh, this is interesting because I think offshore talent is, I think it's phenomenal. I think there's a lot of people who discredit offshore talent because they feel like they cannot produce the same standards or the same levels of work found here. I disagree with that. I think it actually comes down to even just viewing it as offshore talent and putting that mental category around these people. In your head, a lot of people will automatically discredit the type of work that they can do or the level of work that they can execute at. And I think that's completely wrong. I think just like hiring anybody here in the United States, you have to do the same thing. You have to vet them. You have to make sure they interview well. You have to make sure they have past experience. They can show work. And then I think I don't see any difference in offshore or onshore. I think it comes down to how good is somebody at vetting the, the people and then making it also clear 
like good employees, they have clarity, equipment, and motivation to get their job done. And I think the same applies there. When we put people in a bucket of offshore talent, we almost put them in a bucket of, okay, they can only do certain things and they only need certain things to get this work done, which I think limits the work they can do. And then again, reinforces that perception that they can't do it. But I think that whole thing is wrong. And it starts with the mentality of they're not necessarily offshore talent. They're just good talent that don't live in the U.S.